Okay, welcome everyone to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I am a cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issue, both court-appointed and private, marriage counseling, dissociative identity disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, and so much more. If you need any, any assistance, reach out to DMV Counseling and Therapy Services at 301 325-1550. Today, I'm very excited to have our podcast, a very special guest, Jonathan McLernan. Just like every of my past episodes, I will leave it up to him to properly introduce himself as no one can do a better job. Jonathan, the floor is yours, my friend. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, you, you do a lot of fantastic work in, in the realm of psychology, and I think you probably have a few letters after your name that, that, that I don't have, but I, I do have a real fascination um, around behavioral psychology because I think it plays a really key role when it comes to, to, to weight loss. And uh, I think a lot of this stems from my own personal weight loss journey. So I've lost over 100 pounds, but um, the, the question might be, well, how did I get to be, you know, 330 pounds at one point in my life? And, and, and uh, you know, in a nutshell, it was, uh, I went through some trauma when living in South Africa about 10 years ago, and I really wasn't equipped. I mean, I mean really, I don't think anybody's equipped, but I, wa I wasn't well equipped to deal with the fallout from that. So all of the emotional turmoil that I experienced. And so I turned to, to food and I, I essentially became a binge eating food addict um, because it, food's more socially acceptable than drugs and alcohol. And, and you know, it wasn't really that it was this deliberate choice um, in a sense. Like, it's not like I wanted to become a food addict, but it was kind of more this primal behavior of like, I'm uncomfortable and food provided the easiest escape. And, you know, that's kind of how our brain works. We, we have a problem. Like for me, I was feeling really uncomfortable, you know, having flashbacks and rage and things like that eat food, I feel better. It's like my brain just learned a trick. And th there's also, I think, an element of dissociation because um, I used to be an, an athlete. And so, oh. you know, kind of in denial that like I'd, I'd gotten as big as I had. And uh, so at some point I kind of had to wake up and, and sort of accept the reality of my present condition. And uh, yeah, that, that began this really sort of difficult journey back of trying to trying to find my way back to, to not being obese. So... So did this lead to depression in some time or did you uh were you yeah. going to that yeah it did actually um and this isn't a clinical diagnosis but my suspicion is that i experience a condition known as cyclothymia which I, I would think you're familiar with and and for those who don't know the term i, I would classify it as under the radar bipolar and so uh, i don't think that like my depressive episodes were severe enough to reach the clinical definition of depression but um because i was experiencing anxiety um significantly at one point i was having multiple anxiety episodes a day and uh the way that i explain it is like it's like redlining an engine you're revving it way too hot and and the engine then has to basically shut down to cool down before it can start running back at a normal temperature normal speed and for me that would be what depression would look like it would be like this black cloud uh, i call it like the cloud of glum would come over my head and i would just feel really heavy-hearted really like uh, it wasn't that it was suicidal but i, I just um, like everything seemed to just hurt and ache and everything was black and seemed bleak. And, uh, you know, it was just in, in this place, I had no energy and no desire to do things. E even if like logically I knew I should do something to help myself, I, I had no sort of desire to do that. And then after a couple of days, this would sort of lift. But then, then there's the fear, of course. Uh, well, when's the next episode going to happen? <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
Now, um, I know that you became a coach, right? Now you actually help people um, go through, especially from what they are now in terms of like uh, overweight or uh, mobility overweight um, to getting healthier. Now, every people will deal with their relationship with food differently. You dealt with it in some way. Others will have past traumatic uh, disorders that may um, create a, a stronger attachment to food. So how do you help them detach from it? Uh, that's a really good question. And I will say that there, there might come a point um, where if someone is outside of my scope of practice that I would refer out um, because I'm not a clinical psychologist. Now, I did study marketing psychology and my coaching certifications uh, are really heavy on behavioral psychology. So I have quite a good understanding along with my own personal experience. But there will come a point in time if I do realize that someone is clinically beyond my scope of practice that I would refer out. That being said, uh, it doesn't mean that if someone is, is a severe case that I'm unable to help them. It just, we put some boundaries around the work that I'm going to do. Um, I say that we, we use this information, this understanding of what's happening in the brain, whether it's, it's you know, there is past trauma, whether there's depression, anxiety, it helps us to inform the behavior. Because I like to say that all behavior makes sense. Now, I don't mean that all behavior is good or that all behavior is necessarily helpful. But if we understand what's driving the behavior, even an unhelpful behavior makes sense. We could say, for example, uh, someone who smokes. So we know quite clearly that smoking is not a healthy long-term behavior. Right. It's pretty destructive. But in the moment, somebody who's smoking might have the thought, well, I'll quit tomorrow, but just today I need to deal with this problem and the cigarette solves that problem. It's a great short-term solution, but it's a terrible, destructive long-term solution. So when we kind of understand what's driving the behavior, it means that we can now start to view it with the lens of compassion as opposed to, say, judgment. Um, because that was, and I, I think that's something that I struggle with and I, a lot of my clients had struggled with is they would do this thing that they know is not a helpful behavior and they couldn't seem to figure out why it was they were doing it when logically it didn't make sense. But to help them understand well, this, this isn't coming from your prefrontal cortex, it's not coming from the logical part of your brain. This is coming from a more primal part of your brain uh, that, that really is, is quite a bit more powerful in one sense. When we have that understanding, um, like I like to say the compassionate awareness is the place that change can occur. So we, we bring that behavior into our conscious awareness. We understand why it's happening. And then when we understand that we can now say, okay, well, are there some triggers around this? So, you know, if we start to, because very rarely do things just like randomly out of the blue happen. It might seem like it, but very often we can trace it back and find, well, there's actually some triggers. Maybe I was stressed about work or my kids stressed me out or, or things like that. So we start to you know, chain back and figure out what are some of the triggers causing the behavior to happen. And then we can start to, with that awareness, uh, maybe correct our environment, correct our thinking around it and so on. Um, and then we can, we can say, well, what's a habit we might want to replace that behavior with? Interesting. Um, now, obviously, when you took the example of uh, addiction to smoking mm -hmm. versus addiction to eating. Now, obviously, the smoking part is very hard to know someone who is smoking, especially if they're thin, you will not, it's not a visual aspect, because right. overweight, yeah. you could easily see them say, you know what, they have no control over eating, but you will not know the same when someone is smoking. <laughs> so again, maybe those who are actually smoking are thinking that, well, it's not visual, Unless if you look at their uh, nails and they're all yellow or their, yes. uh, you know, or their mustache or whatever it is. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for everything else, food has a more, I would say, um, perception 
to how the person deal with their addiction versus someone who's actually smoking and can hide their addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, smoking has really fallen out of favor publicly, which I think is a, is a good thing, right? It's no longer seen as cool or tough or, or, you know, and so it's a behavior that we recognize, but food is something we have to encounter every day. It's, it's essential to our survival. I mean, yes, you could go a couple of days without food and you're probably not going to die, but <laughs> essentially we're faced with food every day. And in fact, we're faced with hundreds of cues a day that we often see unconsciously reminding us that we should eat. Yes. And so for a food addict, uh, you know, for myself, for example, where I really struggled to regulate my emotional impulses around food, um, it was like torture because there was a part of me that knew that my eating behaviors were contributing to me being obese, but there was a sense of like almost powerlessness, like victimhood that I that I felt around it because it seemed like th the only way to shut up the impulses in my head would be to eat. Yes, interesting. Um, have you tried every diet in the world, John? <laughs> or I mean, well, <laughs> the, uh, like it, it feels diet. like it. Yeah, like uh, I, I let's say if we look at the spectrum, um, I've gone from like a, a raw food vegan um, all the way to just about carnivore, and so oh, I think okay. so. I've really it's not necessarily that maybe I've tried every single diet in existence, but I've really spanned the spectrum of eating in terms of attempting to change um, my own my own eating behaviors, mm -hmm. and um, e all of these things I think in a sense were an attempt to not deal with the real problem. Okay. You know, I think there's this fear, you know, especially in the case of trauma, but really it's like I wouldn't have the strength or the ability to handle like what it was that I was fighting if I was to face up to the truth of it or the reality of it. And so I got really into like supplement science, like high level micronutrition um, as well as macronutrition, um, looking for answers in, I say, in all the wrong places. It's not that like ne diets are necessarily, well... I'd say that like something like the Mediterranean diet is recognized as actually a pretty healthy way of eating, but it wasn't really the, it wasn't really taking care of the root cause of my my behaviors around food. Yes, and and actually you you bring up a very good point, John. I'm I'm sure that you're familiar with the TLC show, My Six Hundred Pound Life. Yeah, yeah. Back to now, the bariatric surgeon, and he did you know before he actually conduct the surgery, he does tell them to go see a psychotherapist. And to be able to also change their behavior and lose 50 to 100 pounds out of their weight before he can conduct the surgery. And that is because he wants them to change their relationship with food first before he can do the surgery. Because obviously, if he just jump and do the surgery, people are going to go back to their old habits. They have not really fixed the problem. They actually just put a bandaid on it. Yeah. And that, that's extremely powerful. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that that is a recognized important step because bariatric surgery can be a useful tool and you know, you know but there's certainly risk like i you know i think one of the things that the, the bariatric surgeons would try to avoid is this perception that it's a quicker and easy fix mm -hmm. like it's a really it's actually quite a risky procedure um you know i, I have a, a former client of mine and she'd had bariatric surgery and, and lost over 100 pounds um as you know well probably over 150 so she'd lost about 50 pounds had the surgery lost another 100 pounds she nearly died a couple of times with like major like mineral deficiencies because she had such a hard time uh, yeah. digesting and absorbing food. So there was some real complications that come from that. Um, and so it's not just like an easy way out. I think it's really important to, to identify that. And the other side of it is I think there's a stigma around those who would go through bariatric surgery 
and people look at them and say, well, you took the easy way out. But I think the only people that really use that type of language are those who don't understand the struggle, um, basically, of, of an addict. Because, the, the you know, there's a really interesting course. I think it was on Audible and, and, and maybe one of the great courses, and it was called The Addictive Brain. And, and it went through not just narcotic addiction, but like food and um, gaming and pornography, and it explained, like, the, uh, everything that's happening in the brain. And, and those who have a greater propensity towards addiction, it's really, you know, it's quite something. And unless you experience that struggle, it's really hard to comprehend what it's like. Um, now, those. Uh, let's go to the addiction part here, uh, Jonathan. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel that um, because some people or some actually claim that those who are actually addicted to any kind of food or sex or porn or whatever it is, they have um, weak personalities. They feel that they, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how people judge so quickly, really, like you said, without understanding the, the, the process in itself, but they kind of say, well, someone who look at food, they could just say to themselves, well, it's not breakfast, it's not lunch, it's not dinner, so I'm not going to snack in between. I should be strong, I should be powerful. I'm not going to let food dictate my behavior or dictate who I am. So does that mean that uh, the majority of people who actually do let themselves go is because they have a part of their brain where they do not process the same information as those who can actually can control themselves? Yeah, I, I, like I think it's, um, again, for those who don't understand, I would... I would say I understand why on the surface it would appear like someone has poor impulse control, but I, we should view that as the symptom. So let's understand why that's taking place. So, you know, one simple analogy I like to give is that we, we have like three or maybe four batteries um, mm-hmm. in, in, our, in our life. Um, it's a, a physical battery, um, an emotional battery, a mental or a cognitive battery, and a spiritual battery. And you need to look at all the different factors in your life that are that are potentially draining those batteries and then look at where you might be recharging those batteries and look at the balance of that. And so you think about um, somebody who's who's kind of experienced trauma and grapples with addiction and so on. And, what, and, and you think about like if they have many, usually there's going to be many other stressors in their life that drive them to this sort of pattern of behavior. And so willpower is a finite resource and it's one that's kind of fickle actually it's not nearly as reliable as we'd like it to be and you know the the sad part is let's just say you resist the urge a hundred times in a day and then you finally break down and give in and the inclination is well i have no willpower and it's like no you used like you depleted it you used it a hundred times over successfully and finally you just had nothing left versus someone who's who doesn't have the struggle and, and so those who appear to have the best willpower or the best self-control, what it actually is, is very rarely is, is their willpower actually being tested in that way. Hmm. So, um, so if you go back to the, uh, to the food addiction and all, um, if we talk about your case, mm-hmm. when you were gaining the weight uh, with binge eating, did, did, you, did you ever felt satisfied when, after you ate or did you feel depressed no. because of their eating? Or did you feel like, oh, damn, here we go. This is a, an endless cycle that I cannot get out of. Uh, while I was eating, it was definitely an escape. So there was an element of pleasure to it. Um, I think there was also an element of control. It, it sounds strange to say it that way because binge eating is really an uncontrolled eating. Yes. <laughs> but there was this element of like, um, you know, let's say I would go and I'd buy an entire pizza. Uh, pizza okay. was a real trigger food for me. And... I was like, I get to eat this and nobody's going to tell me I can't do it. You know, so it was, it was almost like I was seeking to have control over something in my life because I felt like I was out of control. But the, the crazy part is 
you know, I would get to maybe five slices through and there's still like three more in the box. And I'm like filled to the brim. I'm like, I can't finish. But I felt this compulsion that I had to keep eating because I bought the pizza. And even I would actually start to feel this anger or the spite towards myself because I'm like, here we go again. I just did it again, even though I said I was never going to do it again. And I would, I would actually keep eating to now punish myself, to make myself even more physically uncomfortable uh, out of anger towards myself and my sort of seeming lack of self-control. So there's a real uh, like void of compassion towards myself in that experience. So was it like more of a self-destructive mentality that you had mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. the, the outcome of, uh, you know, feeling too much overweight and not ex- exercising enough and all? Yeah, like there, there was a sense of hopelessness. Like I'm never going to get out of this trap. I don't know how to. And and I would say like, I I didn't know the kind of help that I needed. So I actually tried to hire some coaches to help me lose weight. Okay. But the, the, the problem is they didn't really know how to deal with someone like me and the struggles that I had. And and look, it's not really a knock on them as coaches. They, they weren't really prepared to deal with someone who was a binge eating food addict who'd been traumatized and grappling with anxiety and depression. Like that's jeepers. That's a mess to dump into someone's lap and say, can you help me? <laughs> You know, and I didn't really know the kind of help that I needed either. That was a frustrating thing. So it felt like there was this disconnect, like I was misunderstood, like nobody seemed to get me. Nobody seemed to understand what was going, but I didn't really understand what was going on either. And so it was this really frustrating place to be. And, uh, you know, there was, there was a coach that I hired back in about 2017. So going a little over four years ago. And, and this really, I think was a turning point for me. Okay. Uh, he was a natural bodybuilder, you know, and I still had this idea in my head. If I had a physique kind of like his, this enviable physique that I would find happiness, maybe I would find love. I would actually like, and he didn't treat me the way I expected he would. I, I was still quite abusive towards myself. So my, my negative self-talk was atrocious. If I'd ever talked to another human being the way I talked to myself, like nobody would ever want to associate with me. It was, it was horrible. Yeah, it was brutal. And I kind of, so I projected that onto him. I just assumed that he would see me the way I saw myself, this fat, hopeless loser who could never get anything figured out. And he didn't. He, he looked at me and he, he, he said, you have potential. And I was like, how could you possibly see that when, when I'm just like this hopeless loser who's been struggling for seven years, like with my obesity, you know? And uh, he treated me with compassion. Okay. And I, I didn't know even like, I think I had a misunderstanding around what compassion was. And I was even afraid of it because I was like, if you show me kindness, I'm just going to take advantage of it and continue in my destructive pattern of behavior. I didn't believe that compassion would actually be the key to me breaking free from my destructive pattern of behavior. But he kept, he refused to give up on me. There's times I tried to push him away, you know, um, and he wouldn't give up on me. And that that's a real testament to him. He never you know, he never enabled my behaviors because there's a difference between compassion and enabling. Yes. <laughs> and so he didn't enable my destructive behaviors. But at the same time, when I tried to tell him what a loser I was and hopeless and he should just basically give up on me, he refused. And uh, That's a true he, coach. That's a real good coach, definitely. Yeah. And so, so he asked me this question. And I said, this is the question that really changed my life. He said, Jonathan, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? Wow. Okay. And how far down did you have to go to see the name? Uh, It wasn't on there. (laughs) That was was a really very, like in one sense, a very confronting question. Like I was really taken aback and I was speechless because all of a sudden I'm starting to do this calculation. I'm going, I'm not even on the list. 
Like it hadn't really entered my sphere of consciousness that I was allowed to be on the list, let alone near the top of the list of things I love and value. It, it just wasn't how I saw myself and maybe it wasn't how I saw masculinity or male strength. And so now all of a sudden, these like my world's kind of been rocked. I'm like, here's this guy that I look up to and I admire because he's successful, he's healthy, he's got a good family and all, and, and he's got elements you know that, that I'd like to learn from. And he's telling me that like, I need to be on this list of things I love and value. <laughs> what does that even look like? Where do you start? Because men very rarely talk about things like self-love, self-compassion, yes. things like that. So I, I had no idea where to start even. Um, but, but that shifted my perspective. And that started me going, okay, the problem isn't really food, is it? Wow. And how long do you think you'd actually lose the 100 pounds, Jonathan? Permanently, um, like I, I say, it took about six years. Okay. Now, people will hear that and they'll go, why did it take so long? <laughs> and I say, well, okay, truthfully, I probably lost me like 600 pounds. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but, you gain you loss, you gain your loss, yeah. Right, right. And so, but but to lose it permanently, it was probably about uh, 14 months. 14 months, okay. Yeah. Um, did you have to get like, uh, like um, abdomal, abdominoplasty or uh, any of no. the... No, I mean, I, ha I have loose skin, but I mean, like, whatever. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm married. My wife loves me. Uh, you know. <laughs> All the love like, handles, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, there, there's a part of me that's, like, kind of tempted to, to some degree. But I, I'm, like, honestly, again, for the risks, the recovery, the, and all that kind of stuff, I'm, like, it, it really doesn't change who I am. And, in fact, it's kind of a, a marker of my success. E my success. Yeah. And so um, I don't, I don't necessarily strut around with my, my shirt off um, or anything like that. And, I, and, and truthfully, I don't, I don't have like a fitness model physique. Like um, I haven't really, you know, I, I, it's really not about pursuing aesthetics for me now. It, it's about functionality. So for example, I have a young son, he's seven months old. Oh, and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. What a, you know, what a wonderful blessing because I still have urges you know, and I think it's important to highlight this. So people would look at my story and think that I've got it all figured out. I never struggle or things like that. And I'm like, no, I st I'm human. Okay. But there's a difference here. So let's just say, for example, I'm going to Costco or, or you know, we have a store up here called Superstore and it's a, it's a big warehouse type store. And you pass by this like jumbo bag of, of chips and you go, oh man, I would just love to just demolish that entire bag oh, of yeah. chips. <laughs> right. The thought still comes into my head. But then I look over at my son and I go, what am I teaching him? Mm -hmm. And if I go down this path, am I going to be able to be present in his life? Or am I have to sit on the couch and be like, sorry, daddy can't play with you because, you know, he can't get down on the floor. Yeah. And it's like, what do I want more? Well, I want, I want to be, I don't want to be a sideline dad. I want to be present in my son's life. I want to be able to physically, I want to be able to run after him. So now I'm like, I'm working really hard on my conditioning um, because this kid's limbs don't stop moving. <laughs> and I'm kind of getting like a, a preview of what's waiting for me as soon as he figures out how to like walk. Oh and yeah, wait till he hits two years old. You know, <laughs> terrible twos. I have a three-year-old, and trust me, okay. uh, it's not fun. It's not fun. I mean, uh, I'm <laughs> almost fifty, so I gotta yeah. like run after him, make sure that he's safe. And this kid can run. He yeah. runs. So yeah, I I know exactly. Uh, just just expect the unexpected, John. Uh, yeah. Well, I said, I need to be able to, so, so I, I'm, I'm working kind of on, on sprints a little bit. Uh, so I've got a recumbent bike and I, I do that primarily. So I'll do, I'll do sprints and then I'll do, um, like I'm trying to get to four miles in 10 minutes. Okay. Um, so that's maintaining a, and, and I'm, I got to 3.82 the other day. So I'm getting, I'm getting close. Okay. Excellent. Um, 
because when I started, I was at, I was able to do about two point nine seven in ten minutes. So now I'm up to three point eight two. Okay. And why four miles in ten minutes? I don't know. I just like round numbers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the idea is really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to increase my stamina so that I can keep up with him. Um, so I can sprint after him if I need to, because if he just he's he's his head's on a swivel. The kid never sits still. He wrestles his way to be facing forward. He does not snuggle because he has to look at everything happening in the world. Yes. And so I can see he takes after me, and that he's intensely curious about the world, um, and and he's he's trying to go everywhere already. So all of this to say, I my love for my son and my desire to be a father and an active and a present father that models healthy behaviors supersedes my desire to binge eat. I see. Now, um, what would be uh, an encouraging words that you would have to all the listeners out there, uh, Jonathan, when it comes to them struggling with their weight? If you have to summarize your seven years of struggles and, and the both struggles of gaining and losing the weight, of course, um, what would you tell them to be able to encourage them to move forward? You're stronger than you realize, um, for one. Uh, two, I wouldn't actually take the struggles out of my past. Some people think maybe I would want to maybe remove my trauma or things like that. I don't. I'm actually grateful for it because it's in having to go through this struggle. It's really shaped my character and helped me to become the, the individual that I am today. And so rather than resent the struggle, uh, maybe look at it like you're just a couple of chapters. Yeah, you're a couple of chapters into this incredible potential transformation story. Um, and it's, it, you're just at the beginning. It's going to be hard, but I've never met a remarkable person who had an easy life. And so if you can work your way through this, you become a remarkable person. And so it's worth it. Wow. Well, Jonathan, I, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. I would love to be able to go on for another two hours. Um, <laughs> I really do appreciate the time you took out of your very busy schedule to join us. Thank you also for participating and inspiring our many listeners. Now, we hope you have all enjoyed today's episode. I'm very excited about the many upcoming guests we have scheduled for the Happiness Journey podcast filled with inspirational stories, just like the one you listened to today. Now, here are a few concluding words of wisdom. Now, if you were able to look back in 2021 at your most brilliant successes, stunning comebacks, amazing catches, and smoking ideas, and you were to find that virtually all of them seemed to materialize out of thin air when you least expected them and that they had exceeded even your greatest expectation at the time, how excited would you be about the coming new year 2022 and what you're about to accomplish? I'm sure you're getting chills and they are multiplying. My name is Dr. Dan Amzalag and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life. Thank you all. <laughs>